a listener production. This episode was recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Aurora Nation. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Before we get started, just a quick warning that this episode contains references to sexual assault. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a club helping women to connect, learn and lead. This year, the Australian Parliament was rocked by allegations of sexual assault and systemic inequality. Brought to a head by a brave woman called Brittany Higgins, Australian of the Year and sexual assault survivor Grace Tame, and a social media campaign revealing a lack of consent education led by Chanel Contos. At around this time, we held the Future Women Leadership Summit, and most conversations kept coming back to this important topic. This episode includes a keynote address by Australian MP Tanya Plibersek. As a senior woman in the parliament, the Labor MP captured the feelings of many in the room and talked about how the country could move forward. Here she is now. I accepted this invitation to speak about six weeks ago and at that time I didn't know what was coming and I didn't know just how urgent a conversation like this would feel. The revelations that you've been hearing about in Parliament House have been shocking, if not necessarily surprising. I've talked to a lot of women and a lot of men actually over the last few weeks about what's been going on and I've got to say the overwhelming feeling is that people have just had it. They've just had it. They're angry, they're sad, they're deeply frustrated because it feels like we've been going through this experience again and again, year after year, and the script doesn't change. But I would say for all of that, frustration and familiarity, something has changed this time. I really do feel like we've crossed the line. There are more voices, more demanding, and I hope this can be a moment for real change. Of course, that depends on us. There's a women's suffrage banner, you know, a few metres by a few metres in Parliament House. Uh, If you visit, you have to go looking for it, actually. It's a little bit out of the way. And it was made by an Australian artist in London in 1908 in support of the women of the United Kingdom, supporting them to achieve what we had achieved in Australia, women's suffrage. It's big Britannia and little Australia. And little Australia is saying to Mother Britannia, trust the women, Mother, as I have done. Trust women, listen to women, believe women. It was pretty revolutionary in 1908. And sadly, in some ways, it still seems that it is. The message is very simple, but it makes all the difference. Unfortunately, um, that's not the feeling that women have had in response to the series of sexual assault and sexual harassment allegations that have come up in federal politics in recent weeks. A lot of the response has been about politics and it's looked a lot like victims and survivors have come second. We all know that the legal system is 
stacked against victims of sexual assault. Giving evidence in court, speaking about trauma publicly, these processes go for years and they can be excruciating. Of the cases reported, only a fraction ever end in conviction. So the estimate in New South Wales is that only one in 10 assaults is reported to police. And of those one in 10 assaults that are reported to police, about 3% end in a guilty conviction. So we can talk about the importance of the rule of law. And of course, <laughs> I absolutely agree that we are a country that should be, must be governed by the rule of law. But we have to think about justice for victims and survivors as well, because justice feels out of reach for a lot of women right now. I, I have to say, I don't think this is a problem with policing. I think the police are absolutely dedicated to doing their work. I think this is something more fundamental about our justice system. When 15,000 women can report to police in 2018, 2019, and only 3% of those end in guilty verdicts. So it's not any wonder really that knowing, or at least having an inkling of those statistics, a lot of victims remain silent. When people don't have confidence in the justice system to deliver justice, we end up with trial by media and nobody wins. This isn't a new problem. I think one of the great frustrations is that we already know so much about what we should be doing to keep women and their children safer. There are decades of reports into domestic violence, sexual assault, sexual harassment. When I was the Minister for Women in the Rudd government, we started work on the national plan to reduce violence against women and their children in 2007. In 2009, we had the report by the Family Law Council on family violence. In 2019, we had the Law Reform Commission report on family violence. In 2020, the Sex Discrimination Commissioner delivered her report, Respect at Work, to the government. No legislative change yet from that report delivered a year ago. We see the state-led reviews, the Victorian Royal Commission, the Queensland Review, led by Quentin Bryce. And uh, in few, just a few years ago, three reviews announced into Liberal Party culture by Scott Morrison in 2018 in response to Julia Banks at that time talking about, and Lucy Gatui talking about the bullying culture in the Liberal Party and Julie Bishop saying that they had a, a woman problem. The, the recommendations are there. It's not like we don't know what to do. What we really need is to be willing to act on these reports. To do what we know will make women safer. And Actually, in so many respects, we've do, been doing the exact opposite. Like the, the abolition of the family court will not keep women safer. You'd need specialists who are all over domestic violence when they're making decisions in the family court. 
it's not just a task for government. This is on all of us. It's on us as parents, as teachers, as uncles and aunts, as friends and mentors. We need to be talking to our kids from the earliest days in an age-appropriate way about what respectful relationships look like. We've got to explain that equality is not just good for women, it's good for men too. That respect and decency and kindness, these are the ways we build loving, trusting and deeply rewarding relationships. Of course, we need to be teaching these lessons in schools. We need to promote them broadly in our culture. But is it really any surprise that so many young people are missing this message when the average age of first exposure to pornography is 10 years old? This is a profoundly unhealthy way of teaching kids about respectful relationships where aggression is normalised, it's expected. We need to give them an alternative picture of what healthy relationships look like, relationships built around mutual love and respect. If the last few weeks have been frustrating and sad, we need to take that frustration and make sure we channel it into the energy and the passion that we need to insist on change. We owe it to the young women whose bravery has made this conversation possible. I'm sure many of you watched Grace Tame's inspiring speech at the National Press Club last week. You saw Chanel Contos's petition about safety in schools. You saw Brittany Higgins come forward and tell her story and you saw her determination to change the culture in Parliament House. You've seen Saxon Mullen campaigning for changes to consent laws here in New South Wales. These women aren't just asking for change, they are demanding it. It really does feel like we've hit a turning point. So I've talked elsewhere about the changes that we face coming out of this, the recession. Coming, we've had this difficult, chaotic time with COVID-19 and then the recession. But it does remind me in so many ways of Australia after the Second World War, when we made some decisions about what we wanted to change in the long run, what we needed to change. I, I do feel like all of these things coming together now give us one of these inflection points in our history. But to do that, we need leadership. We need leadership that will make sure that women are safe in their homes, in their workplaces, on the street, in their communities. We need leadership to reduce the gender pay gap and the superannuation gap. We need leadership to reduce the cost of childcare. We need leadership to give women dignity in old age. We need leadership to make sure jobs are secure and women are paid decently, most particularly in those caring professions where women dominate. We need economic security and independence because for women, economic security and independence 
go hand in hand with safety. They go hand in hand with having options. It's much harder to leave a violent relationship if you don't have a place to take your kids or the resources to get by. This is what motivates me as Labor's Shadow Minister for Women, and it's what motivates Labor. I hope that we can work with you to deliver a better future for Australian women. Thank you. Hey, it's Helen again, jumping in to reflect on how justice still feels out of reach for a lot of women. But there is some good news. Since our summit and this address, one of the women Tanyan mentioned, Saxon Mullins, reached a milestone in her campaign for law reform, with New South Wales announcing sweeping changes to sexual assault laws. After Tanya's address, she was joined by Future Women's Creative Director Jamila Rizvi for a Q&A. So let's jump straight into that. Here's Jamila. And I'm going to start with a really simple question, which is, does the Attorney General need to resign? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I think there needs to be answers to um, what happened 30 years ago. And... It's completely wrong for the Prime Minister to say that an independent inquiry would be unprecedented. We just had an independent inquiry into a High Court judge to see whether, you know, the stories of sexual harassment were something that might prevent him doing his job properly. We also, you would remember this, Jamila, had a a royal commission into whether Julia Gillard's boyfriend built her a bathroom 30 years ago. So... All this nonsense about whether uh, an independent inquiry would be the end of the rule of law is just that. It's nonsense. I, I, I wouldn't prejudge the outcome of that. I think the real question for the government is why are they so determined not to have such an inquiry? Of course, Christian Porter is entitled to be considered innocent until proven guilty. But what troubles me profoundly is that there will be no independent inquiry if this government has its way. And also, I mean, the Prime Minister said he didn't read the letter from the woman who had made this complaint against Christian Porter. He he didn't watch Brittany Higgins on the project. He didn't watch Julie Bishop on the 7.30 report last night. How is it that the Prime Minister can find time to send a farewell message to, um, you know, some guy who's retiring from the Sharks Football Club, but he can't find the time to face up to what women are saying about their experiences in Australia today or their experiences in his workplace, in his workplace that he is responsible for. So... I'm not like I say. I'm not going to prejudge what will eventually be found about Christian Porter, but we have to. We absolutely have to have the time to ask these questions. And I don't want a political witch hunt. I want an independent, above reproach person at arm's length. I don't want to do the inquiry myself, but I want to be assured. I want to be assured. I wanted to also ask about the experience of staff members because under the Ministerial Staffing Act, staff don't have a lot of power. Is that something that concerns you, not just from a ministerial perspective, but more generally from a parliamentary staffing perspective? 
Yeah, it really does. And in fact, in 2017, when the Me Too movement was really at its peak, uh, I well, maybe it's at its peak now. It was really taking off, I should say. I asked for us to pull out the um, sexual harassment provisions in the Members of Parliament Staff Act because I just wanted to reassure myself that if there was a Harvey Weinstein, there would be a way for staff in Canberra to complain about that. And I was so shocked. There was literally nothing specific in the Members of Parliament Staff uh, Act or guidelines that would guide you in what to do if there was sexual harassment of a member of a parliamentarian staff. Like it was it was so much worse than a private sector workplace or another public sector workplace. So we wrote at that time to um, the minister who was responsible and some changes over the next six months, there were some changes made. But it's the protections are still not good enough for parliamentary staff. So I think we have seen some improvement, but there's a lot more uh, that needs to happen. I'm pleased that there'll be this inquiry by Kate Jenkins uh, into the parliamentary workplace. But what worries me is her respect at work report still sitting on the desk of the, guess what, Christian Porter, the Attorney General, after a year, no action taken. And there's no point in writing reports and then not acting on them. So there has to be, sure, a report. It won't report till November. I don't want the momentum to have been lost. If we're going to go to all this trouble, if people are going to bear their souls and, as Brittany Higgins says, risk her career or lose her career, then surely, surely the outcome has to be there to protect other people. And I don't want to see the momentum drift off. And in November, you know, this report slides out quietly and nothing really changes. In a moment, I'm going to go to the audience for some questions. So have a think while I ask Tanya uh, just one more question and then Alicia is going to be coming around with the microphone and we'll call on someone. I wanted to ask what sort of support you get from your women colleagues and what a difference having women in the building might make to parliamentary culture because we have seen not a big enough shift but we have seen a shift in the number of women who walk the corridors in Canberra over the last 10 years. It it actually makes all the difference. It's the thing that has made the biggest difference in my time in parliament. Um, When I went into parliament about a quarter of our Labor parliamentarians were women and uh, now it's almost half. I remember when I I was elected in 1998 with a large-ish group of young women MPs, uh, Julia Gillard, Nicola Roxon, Kirsten Livermore, Michelle O'Byrne, Anna Burke. There was a bunch of us that came in round about the same age, round about the same time. And if two or three of us were talking in the corridor, any bloke that walked past just couldn't help himself. They, they would always have to say, oh, it looks like the ladies are taking over the place. Glug, 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 glug. And <laughs> um, honestly, they were just so unused to saying, but, but that was better than when my friend Jeanette McHugh was elected to the parliament from New South Wales in 1983. She was the first woman from any political party to be elected to the federal parliament from the state of New South Wales. 1983. It's actually not that long ago. 
in the old Parliament House, there were no toilets in the members' section because they didn't ever expect women to be elected. The ladies had to go out into the public loos because, you know, who would ever think that they needed to provision for that crazy idea? Lady parliamentarians, goodness me. Things have changed. The parliamentary bar that was a bar when I started is a childcare centre now for um, parliamentarians and staff, very importantly, the staff of the parliament. I just feel that the pace of change is too slow. But like I say, the biggest change is in getting a critical mass of women parliamentarians. And it, it frustrates me so much that we have had to fight this every step of the way. The 1994 conference, the first conference when we did affirmative action, it was a fight. We didn't know we were going to win the vote on the conference floor. It was a big celebration when we did. That first step is the most difficult step. And then we've ratcheted up the whole way our ambition. Unless you set targets, unless you hold yourself accountable as an organisation, unless you are prepared to look inside and say, what is the problem here? Why aren't women beating down the doors to work in this place, unless you're prepared to ask the hard questions and take steps to hold yourself accountable, nothing changes. You just get drift. All right, over to you, everyone. Um, what I'd like to ask you is what's your vision? If we're all in this room this time next year together, what do you hope to see and what can women like us do to get there? Thank you. That's a, a, a fantastic question. There's two real elements to this challenge. The first element is a set of legal reforms, not just to laws, but also to justice systems that would make it easier for people when they make a complaint that victims of violence are not re-traumatised by the legal systems that they are part of. But as well as the changes to our laws and our legal and justice systems, there's a huge job we need to do with culture change. And to be honest with you, it's not going to happen over the next year. It's going to be years of hard work. But unless we set the direction now, unless we name this as an objective of our nation, we're not going to get there. Hi, my name's Rachel. I really share your frustration about more reviews being announced and not enough action being taken by our government. And my question is, if you were in charge tomorrow, what are the three things you would immediately do to make things better for women? Do I have to stick to three? <laughs> um, look, there's... I think you could implement some of the re recommendations of the reports that have already been done as a start. Uh, I'd probably reverse the abolition of the family court. I'd double or triple or quadruple respectful relationships uh, programs in schools. I would look at the consent laws around Australia, the different uh, regimes that make it so difficult to prove that a sexual assault has happened uh, even when common sense and every fibre of your being tells you that it has. I'd absolutely implement the industrial relations changes that we need to not just reduce the gender pay gap, but make sure work is secure and that wages as companies do better, their employees share in the benefit of that because economic security and 
your, your own safety. The, the two are so closely linked. We could talk all afternoon. It, it, it's a long list. Could everyone join me in giving an enormous round of applause to Tanya Blivisek? Thank you very much, everyone. And remember, that was from one of our live events. And you can become part of the movement by signing up at futurewomen.com. The Future Women Leadership Series was presented by Helen McCabe, executive producer Jenny Goggin, sound production by Darcy Thompson. Listener.